the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right. Yes, he is, and he's here to say hello. Welcome. Good to have you with us today. It is a Thursday, one week away from Thanksgiving. And uh, as we lead off today's program, we're going to talk about, uh, well, a number of things going on in the world of news. A little bit later on in tonight's show, Paula Dresden's going to give us an update on progress for Bethlehem A.D. For many Northern Californians, this is the sort of official start to um, their Christmas holiday celebrations. This year, Bethlehem A.D., running December 21, 22, and 23, from 6 until 9.30 p.m., free and open to the public. And uh, I think they need some additional volunteers. So we're going to find out when uh, Paula Dresden drops by for a visit. I also want to, before we meet our first guest tonight, thank all of our listeners for standing with us and the Bay Area Rescue Mission. Made great progress last night. And I I recognize that uh, trying to adopt 700 needy Bay Area families is a pretty pretty lofty goal. Uh, But we've done it before, and we made good progress. Last count, I'm going to do the math in my head, we were 265 shy of that. And then today, our good buddy from... Vitucci and Associates, Pat Vitucci, came along and adopted a whole bunch of additional families. So we're um, we're somewhere above 200, uh, not by much, but we're somewhere above 200 families that still need to be adopted at $40 each, and that will provide the average family of four about 20 meals um, some of these meals will be delivered to their homes. Uh, those that can't get out to uh, to receive them or pick them up, rather, uh, they'll be delivered as early as Monday. And uh, the rest will be coming by the rescue mission to pick up these boxes of hope over the next couple of three, four days leading into Thanksgiving on Thursday. So if, uh, if you've lingered and still want to give, you can do so online at kfax.com. That's kfax.com. 200 families um, remain to be uh, accounted for uh, by that uh, sponsored and adopted, as I'm calling it. And that essentially means that uh, 200 KFAX listeners each gave $40 each. Uh, that would take care of everybody, and we'd be sure that every single family that signed up for a meal box at Thanksgiving will receive one. So simply go to kfax.com. You can find out more. Click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission um, Thanksgiving banner at the top of our homepage, and you can easily give your gift online. And, uh, again, for all of you that called in last night and uh, donated, God bless you. Thank you so much. We're closing in, making good progress, just a little bit more work to be done. And, again, our thanks to all of you that have participated and, and stood with so many of these nitty hurting families this Thanksgiving. Speaking of families, boy, um, does it seem to be under attack? There's sort of mixed news tonight. 
um, ongoing research into what's happening with the divorce rate in the United States shows some uh, some positive action. Now, marriage overall in America, this is a rate of per 1,000 individuals, is right now around 6.8%. So 6.8, almost 7 people out of 1,000 get married. That's the overall U.S. population. The divorce rate of those is approximately 3.2 per 1,000. So it's under half. And that's good news because for a while it was ever heading northward. And uh, we've seen a drop in the divorce rate. You'll love this. Since 2008, for the period between 2008 and 2016, there was an 18% drop in the divorce rate in America. And wow, we can certainly celebrate that. But before you get too excited and break out the champagne, there's a reason in part why that is happening. And we've invited Dr. Jim Dennison to come on and help us understand why that is. Dr. Dennison is a best-selling author, founder of the Dennison Forum, and uh, joins us now by phone. And uh, Dr. Dennison, great to have you back on. All right. Once more with feeling, as they say on the Magic of Live Radio. Dr. Dennison, can you hear me? Craig, I surely can. Good to hear from you today. All right. You as well, sir. You know, when I when I first saw um, this article on your website, DennisonForum.org, I got a little bit excited. I said, well, this is great news. After all these years of, of praying and encouraging people and hounding people even, uh, we've seen some um, direction in the, or movement, rather, in the right direction related to the divorce rate. And so as I was about to, uh, to get all celebratory here, uh, then I read a little bit deeper and found out that, well, there's, there's a reason for a decline in the divorce rate in America. And sadly, it's not necessarily because families are sticking together and uh, not running off to divorce court. Tell us what's happening with this, quite frankly, very troubling trend. Yeah, thank you, Craig. It's the first time in American history that more Americans have lived with a romantic partner than have married one. That's according to Pew Research, and you have to think about that for a second. They tell us that the number of people who have ever married at any point in their lives has fallen from 60% in 2002 to 50% today, but the number of people who have cohabited without being married has grown from 54% to 59%. So in other words, there are nearly 10% more people in America that have lived with someone without marrying than have ever been married. First time it's ever happened. I, I wonder, as we sort of break down many of the reasons behind this, and, and, and clearly the, the, the central predominant answer is trends in changes in morality, spirituality in our country. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that, because one thing that will uh, help keep people on the straight and narrow in terms of their relationships is by uh, living a biblically-based life. That said, um, we, we look at this trend and see what's happening here. And I have to wonder if, in part, it's because um, many of the younger generation, uh, the Gen Xers and Millennials, look at these trends, look at maybe their own life having come from perhaps a broken home and say, you know, I I don't really know that I want to go through all of that. And I remember when mom and dad got divorced and they had to lawyer up and sell the house and split all the assets and everybody got upset. You know, I think with my 
girlfriend and I, isn't it just easier just to move in, cohabitate, and if we decide after a year or two or three or four that it's not working out, we kind of go our separate ways. Do you think sort of following uh, the impact of some of the cultural trends has influenced a lot of these younger generations to just say, nah, marriage, not for me? I think you're exactly right. They see all of the well-publicized celebrity divorces. They see how ugly they can be in the press. They have their own family backgrounds. They saw what their families went through in their own divorce. And they're just opting out. They're just deciding marriage is not for them. What they don't know, though, is that in addition to biblical teaching, there is so much sociological and psychological data demonstrating what a bad idea that is. They have a higher risk of divorce if they do marry after cohabiting. There's remarkable information from Barna and a number of other sources that demonstrate that people that are testing their relationship experience higher levels of depressive symptoms, abandonment anxiety, negative interaction. According to another group, if you're considering whether or not to move in with someone to test a relationship, it's likely not the wisest thing to do. The Pew study reports married adults are more likely than cohabiting couples to trust their partner to be faithful, to act in their best interest, to always tell the truth, and to handle money responsibly. They're more satisfied with their partner's approach to parenting, the way household chores are divided, how well they manage work and personal life, how well they communicate in sex life. In fact, there's not a single subject on which married adults did not report higher satisfaction than those who were cohabiting. Unfortunately, our culture doesn't know that. They think, as you're saying, that they can live together with no consequence, when actually the consequences are significant. And they demonstrate that God's Word is, once again, the best way to live our lives. Yeah, I was going to say, it, 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 it sure leads to the notion that the concept of leave, cleave, and commit, um, and to do so in front of witnesses, and most importantly, in front of God, um, is, is more than just a, a bit of ceremony, um, or a bit of tradition, or even a quote-unquote piece of paper, as I've often heard it uh, almost flippantly referred to. It, it, it really sets about not just a mindset, but a heart set. And let's face it, you know, uh, if, you, if you could drive the car and never have to buy it, you know, first time that uh, the, the tires get scuffed up along the, uh, the curb there, it's very easy just to take back to the dealership and say, nah, I changed my mind, and uh, there's, no, there's no obligation whatsoever. When you bought it, and you got a note, and you're on the hook financially, um, the way you treat that car is going to be a little bit different, won't it? Great analogy. I actually had a friend who would lease cars and do nothing with them for two years. He wouldn't change the oil. He wouldn't have any maintenance done. He'd just turn them in every two years and get another one. The person that bought the car that he had leased for two years was undoubtedly less than excited when they discovered the way it had been maintained. But he just had this idea that as long as I have enough money, I can keep trading up, I can keep trading in, and there's no consequence. What we're discovering is that the analogy actually breaks down when it comes to relationships. When couples are living together rather than being married, on every measurable, identifiable, symptomatic level, they're experiencing lesser levels of happiness. It's just the case across the board. And this comes from secular organizations. This isn't just religious organizations trying to demonstrate and defend biblical truth in a way that might be biased. These are secular organizations like Pew Forum who are demonstrating that it's a bad idea to live together just on the merits. Wow. And, and you know, uh, sadly, the old adage, we live and learn, and sadly, we're, uh, we're not learning here. We're living, but we're not learning. And while we think, in a sense, that we're trying to sort of avoid other sorts of obstacles and life challenges by thinking this is going to make things easier, it's almost as if we're setting ourselves up for 
failure. And let's talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Jim Dennison is with us today. He's got a great commentary on this very issue um, that, as research is demonstrating, uh, the Bible is right after all. <laughs> as more Americans cohabitate rather than get married, um, we're seeing reaping, sadly, the rewards of that. And that means, quite frankly, uh, more broken hearts, more relational failures, and so many points across the board that we kind of look at in terms of what's important in a marriage relationship, harmony when it comes to child rearing, shared common values, a commitment to each other, being there through thick and thin, um, all of that that attends to that uh, leave, cleave, and commitment that Scripture calls us to all falls apart when you try to do it your way as opposed to God's way. Let's talk more about this. Take a time out first, get you updated on some traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. Let's get the latest right now on your Thursday ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about some troubling new statistics, and it's been heading in this direction for quite some time. In fact, as far back as 2008, the period between 2008 and 2016, we've seen an 18% decline in the divorce rate in America. And while you'd think, wow, well, Craig, what are you harping on? That's a good piece of news. Yeah, but there's a reason for it. And that is we're seeing a decline in the number of marriages um, in fact, right now, um, we're, we're looking at, of Americans 18-plus, um, there's been a decline of 8% over that same period of time, meaning that 8% fewer marriages are taking place. And the other alarming number that really demonstrates, I think, Jim Dennison, Dr. Dennison, the, the disconnect here, and that is um, the same Pew Research, and this has also been backed up by work done by George Barna, indicates that 69% of Americans say, yeah, cohabitation, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. They're, that's just fine. So changes in mores, change in attitude about marriage, marriage kind of getting a black eye because we've taken such a easy way out approach to it for so long, has really had an extremely negative impact on overall attitudes. And sadly, while this means fewer divorces, it also means fewer marriages. And what that does to the to the very core of the fabric of, of the nuclear family is very dangerous, isn't it? It truly is. And one of the things that we're not thinking about in some of the studies that are out is the effect on children. It's much more likely for couples that have children but are not married to not stay together, and therefore, over time, a family could have two or three fathers or two or three mothers. They could be in a very uh, different kind of nuclear family situation just because there wasn't a commitment to stay in the relationship for the sake of the children, for the sake of the family, for the sake of their future. And so when there's not that marriage bond, oftentimes the children suffer relative to the stability of the family as well. It's just thought it's just easier to leave for a lot of men especially, unfortunately, they feel like it's a lot easier to walk away if they're cohabiting than if they're in a marriage relationship. If there's not um, some financial repercussions specifically for them, it makes it even easier, they think, for them just to leave. And so there's just all sorts of reasons why, as you said earlier, God's Word turns out to be right again. And, and, and sadly, you know, while the pretext will be, well, it's less complicated, it's less expensive, it's less painful, uh, if you don't have to have an attorney and a judge get involved and you're not spending time in family court. And, and 
having been from a divorced family and gone through all of that and having, you know, suffered firsthand uh, the ravages of court battles and custody arguments and all of this, I get that. I, I understand it. But I also understand the flip side to that, which says, what to a child? Dad never really took it seriously enough to bother to marry my mother? Um, I, I mean, you know, back in the day and an age, that was kind of almost the equivalent of a scarlet letter A on you if you came or were, were born into a family where your parents were not actually married. And, I, and I'm wondering if, if some of this attitude about, well, it's just less costly, less legal, less messy, is, is really an excuse of people that would rather enjoy all the benefits without having to deal with any of the, the commitment that is necessary to build a stable relationship. I mean, there's more to it than, you know, successful marriage, just add ring. And any, any person who's been married successfully for any length of time will tell you it's a little bit more complicated than that. It is that. My wife and I have been married 39 years. I overmarried. There's no question about that. People tell me I outkick my coverage on pretty much a daily basis, and they're exactly right. <laughs> but as you're saying, marriage is about so much more than just the initial commitment or the initial emotions and perhaps watching the relationship. One of the most common reasons from the studies that people do choose to cohabit is that financially they find it easier. If they're already sleeping together, if they're already living in that kind of a context, why not share rent? Why not share the cost of uh, utilities and all the things that go to just living, especially if you're in a very expensive place to live? So they live together as roommates that have sexual relationships for a financial reason. And then they wonder why that's not a stable basis for an ongoing permanent relationship in the covenant of marriage. It's just a terrible way to shift from what's in essence a relationship of convenience and financial motive over to a covenant move from the one to the other is a very difficult thing, and quite frankly, it's very seldom happening in America today, unfortunately. And I, and I wonder, too, big picture, Dr. Dennison, if we're failing to really connect all the dots here in terms of the, the impact on uh, not just the stability of the nuclear family, but the impact on society. And I ask that question because if we look at some ancillary data that's not necessarily directly connected, though perhaps ought to be, of things like rates of suicide, the number of people that are dealing with um, medication to address anxiety and depression, look at the drug abuse rate and the alcohol use rate in this country. I mean, it, it's created entire an entire cottage industry amongst criminals south of the border to supply the drug trade in the United States because America has such a huge illegal drug habit. And I have to wonder after a while, if we look at some of this ancillary data, if it suggests that, well, of course people are looking for ways to anesthetize the pain, escape, um, deal with, with the emotional hurt and pain, because many of the things that the traditional family provides in terms of a sense of belonging and uh, consistency and support and stick to and, you know, a, a cohesive group that will be there for you through thick and thin. So some people go through a difficult time in life. They have family that they can turn to that will be there, pray for them, support them, um, you know, come behind them and others that don't. So they have to turn for drugs or other means of dealing with their problems. Do you think there's a direct correlation between the two? 
there is absolutely statistically a direct correlation between those two. I can show you some evidence very quickly. Those that are married report less depression than cohabiting couples. Married mothers report less depression, more support from their partners, more stable relationships than cohabiting mothers. Adolescents living with married parents are less likely to be depressed than those in step families or single parent families. Married people are least likely to commit suicide. Adolescents in divorced family are more likely to commit suicide. Married people are much more likely to report being happy than cohabitors. Married people, those in intact relationships, are most frequently reporting that they're proud of their work. Married mothers of infants have the most positive attitudes regarding infants. It goes on and on. The statistics, and these are secular statistics from secular surveys and organizations. Married individuals are more likely to cease using marijuana. Continuously married adults are less frequent, uh, less frequently report that they sometimes drink too much. Married women have fewer alcohol problems. It just goes on and on. The significance of marriage, that's why God intended marriage to be the foundation not only of the family, but of society as well. So when people look at a variety of scriptures that speak to the importance of chastity before marriage, faithfulness, warnings against cohabitation without the benefit of marriage, the importance of coming together, as I, as I said earlier, that, uh, that leave, cleave, and commit. And they see this and say, well, that just all indicates that God is just a big killjoy that's trying to spoil all of our fun. No, in fact, it sounds like the real deeper message here is that by, by maintaining, by observing all of that which God has established as his guidelines for relationships really comes with a huge benefit, a huge blessing. And when we decide we're going to head in a different direction, we wind up paying a huge price for it. We may not observe it or or recognize it or acknowledge it, but in the end, the proof, as you say, is in the statistics. It truly is. I used to, as a, when I was a kid, probably 10, 11, 12, got heavily involved in building model cars. It's just kind of a hobby of mine on the side. And I got to where I thought I was good enough at it that I didn't need the directions, didn't need the instructions. I could build the kit out of the box. I could put it together. I could figure out how it all went together. Never worked out well. At the end of the day, the people that designed the car were better at teaching me how to assemble it than I was myself. God made us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. That's why his word is his word, because it's what's best for us. As you say, he's not a cosmic deal joy. He's a father who loves us and wants only what's best for us. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, um, in this very context, he said, what you're praying for is, we put it this way, you would pray for exactly what God's best is for you if you knew what his best was. But since we don't know that, we have to trust him for his best, and that's why we trust his word. When we live by his word, when we live according to his revelation, we live our best lives and our blessed lives. The uh, the penalty, so to speak, related to biblical illiteracy is is such a huge one. And um, you know, like you say, how how much pain could be solved? And well, men across America will go through this on December the twenty fourth and twenty fifth when they help their their five year old assemble you know whatever newfangled toy they might receive for Christmas and decide I don't need to have the instructions here. And at the end of uh, you know a very frustrating two or three hours, extra parts left on the living room floor and uh, whatever the toy is only halfway works and the kids wind up playing with the box. Why? Because rather than read the instructions, we'd rather try and figure it out ourselves. And yet if we just took the time to read the instructions, we could save ourselves a lot of frustration. And in this example, a lot of heartache, 
and pain. The um, complete research available at denisonforum.org. That's Denison, like the chili, right? Denison, an easy way to think of how to spell it. Denisonforum.org. Dr. Jim Denison, we sure appreciate the time and the insights, and I hope folks are going to heed what you've shared with us today. Craig, so good to be back with you today. I really appreciate your ministry, your wisdom, and your work. Take care now, and uh, a, a bit of a premature or slightly early happy Thanksgiving to you, too, Dr. Denison. Thanks for being with us. All right, uh, 5.35, we, uh, we kept him a little bit longer there, but important stuff to talk about. So let's uh, first roll on over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get you updated on this one week before Thanksgiving edition of your Thursday commute. Here's the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm ready to buy a Honda just to stop that crazy kazoo. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. We promised no kazoo playing on, on today's program, and I've had many requests, but I still might sing. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's get down to cases here. Um, as we often talk about on this program heading into the uh, Christmas holiday, for many Bay Area families, the real official start of Christmas is not when Costco puts the trees up in December or anything like that, but rather it's the launch of Bethlehem A.D. and uh, happening this year, again, December 21, 22, and 23 in uh, Redwood City. Many families sort of see this as kind of the official arrival of uh, Christmas. And um, while we're not quite ready to promote it yet, say, Craig, you're getting a hold, hold ahead of yourself. Thanksgiving isn't even here yet. No, it isn't. And there's a reason why we're talking about Bethlehem AD with creative director Paula Dresden. Paula, welcome. A slightly early happy Thanksgiving to you. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on. And uh, let's talk about why you're on. We're, we're certainly great to give people a heads up so they can mark their calendars for December 21, 22, and 23. But the real purpose of your visit tonight is to ask folks for some help. Yes, it's time to sign up and become part of Bethlehem. There's so many uh, areas where we need help and seek it, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I kind of get at my rope's end trying to find out how we can get more Christians involved in presenting the story of, of how Jesus came to earth, which is such a deep and rich story, and uh, our privilege to present. But it's the Christians of the peninsula that present this to the world. And we're just, just so... Um, or just inviting people to come and join us. And, of course, it, it is a, for anyone who's been there, and if you haven't and you've been in the Bay Area for a long time, shame on you. You can make up for it uh, this year by, by making yeah. a point to, uh, to attend. Uh, but if you've been here and you've attended and, and, and been blessed by this, here's a chance to be a blessing back. And as folks uh, perhaps don't even begin to realize, to, to scratch the surface, the amount of effort and labor and the number of people that it takes to pull this off, annually, ideally, well, how many volunteers start to finish? Can you get Yes. Well, I would say from start to finish on a good year, about 300. Wow. Um, you know, and that includes everyone from building and sewing to uh, the character actors and that that sort of thing. One of our biggest segments is um, a program we have for for children ages six to eleven, and it's called the Tribes. And how we work it out is that every half hour period, and there's seven half hour periods from six to nine thirty. The, the 
the kids are divided into groups called the tribes, and they and they switch to another um, another setting where there's all kinds of activities for them to do. Like um, they'll be at the synagogue, or they'll be in a Roman camp. They'll be where the animals are. They'll be in the marketplace and make bread. And then they'll be at the campfires and dancing, at, you know, with the folk dancers. So it's just a blast for them. And I would hate to see anyone who might be interested in that lose out, lose out on this opportunity because it's um, it's something that the kids never forget. And I would like to invite people to go to BethlehemAD.com and sign their children or themselves up to become part of Bethlehem AD. And again, you know, the good news is that uh, a lot of the, the initial heavy work in terms of set design and all of that is, is taken care of, but now you're coming down into the actual assembly and, of course, the actual production, the presentation, running December 21, 22, and 23. What a great testimony and a great way for you to be involved. And uh, to find out more information and to volunteer, go online to BethlehemAD.com. That's BethlehemAD.com. Dot com. And we'll be talking with Paula again when we get closer in towards the Christmas season to remind you about the special event and hope you'll mark your calendars now. But right at this moment, the clarion call for volunteers. Um, if you're somebody who is a carpenter or an actor or a musician uh, or just somebody that's got some time on their hands, you'd like to come and maybe uh, serve as a guide or an usher or a security, yeah. uh, you name it, mm-hmm. they can about use it. And uh, all you need to do to find out where your talents can be put to use is to go to BethlehemAD.com. That's BethlehemAD.com. All right, we hope you get a whole rush of volunteers here, uh, (laughs) Paula, and we'll look forward to talking to you again shortly after Thanksgiving. Okay, thank you so much, and we're looking forward to seeing all the people from KFAX coming on. You bet. Always a blessing, and uh, hope that uh, our listeners will indeed get involved and be a part of this very special annual outreach and event. Bethlehem AD coming to the peninsula. Details to volunteer? BethlehemAD.com Get a look at traffic right now. We'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, (laughs) massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. A lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're, if not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end? Warren Smith joins us now, Vice President of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program. Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged, and just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event, uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more, 
And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your your hope meter is is wearing out in all of this, but that you're you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today? Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines. That's exactly right to see um, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to, um, to say uh, that we live in serious times. But uh, we, uh, as Christians, are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And, of course, Christians, of all people, should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus per se, but the Bible says, or the good, good three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because... As we have been looking out at the world at all these negative uh, stories, we've also been, been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people it, just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, it's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed. We've seen lives rebuilt. We've seen entire cities uh, transformed, as, as in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. Um, uh, Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile in Restoring All Things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope in the midst of these chaotic times. So at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective? And I, and I asked that question because, you know, when we were kids, uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Something always told me that one of those words at least was misspelled. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, there's another set of three R's that I think we can't forget that, in fact, is foundational to our very faith, which is what leads me to this question about perspective, and that is another set of three R's, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that that, uh, that Christ played in world history. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's, because there are, in fact, many more than those three R's in Scripture. We, in fact, we begin, near the beginning of the book, we talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and uh, engage in those activities that um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos. Whereas uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned, R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption, uh, we, we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this, this activity of, of restoring all things to himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world 
that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's it's one thing um, to say that Jesus saves and Jesus uh, transforms and Jesus redeems, but if our lives don't show that, Craig, it's that argument is not conviction. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives. And I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel. Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And, and I ask that question because, you know, let, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if, if you were doing well, you marry the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect job, you had the perfect amount of money in the bank, you have perfect health, uh, all of it, a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay. But here in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening? And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan, because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't His grace shine the brightest? Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, in, in, in throughout history, I think not only in our own individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian Church thriving whenever the world around it was in chaos. We tell stories, for example, uh, from the 2nd and 3rd century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases, were just just ravaging cities, and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease, but it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process. But it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, Even recently in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that that, um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine, and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another, were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember. Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the, the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? Yep. I mean, yeah, is, is, the, is the message of heaven all that powerful a one, uh, absence the existence of hell? I, I, would, I would suggest probably not. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce, Bruce once said that uh, the, an, an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation. And, uh, you know, it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and it's, it's 
awful, also easy for us Christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor. But, you know, our neighbor, Jesus died for our neighbors, even the one, the neighbor that we don't like, <laughs> you know, just as much as Jesus died for us. So I think that, um, you know, what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview, which is that we do live in a fallen world, but that God loves us so much that he sent his son, and when we accept him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with him in this process that uh, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory. You know, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not a, an example of um, spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me, and so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here. Um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that as opposed to saying, look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've got some work to do. And uh, in the midst of this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, Vice President of World News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. <laughs> 